Good morning. I'm so glad you could be with me today as together we get into God's Word, verse by verse. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. I hope you've been finding it helpful to this point. Yesterday, we began turning our attention to chapter 2 of the book of Romans, and I'm going to read this morning the verses I read to you yesterday, which are the bridge into this particular portion of the book of Romans. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourselves wrath for that day of wrath when God's righteous judgment would be revealed. We've been talking now in chapter 2 about what is true of the relatively righteous person. Chapter 1, as you remember, ended with a description of how all are sinners, and particularly the proof of that, and that people are separated from God, is seen in the power of sin captivating people's lives, a power that leads into slavery, both to immorality, sexual perversion, and a debased mind. And the various specific expressions of such slavery could be looked at, as chapter 2 begins, by the person who is relatively moral, relatively religious, and they can look at those kinds of expressions and actions on the part of other people and feel smugly superior. They can feel, listen, I'm not as bad as that. Uh, humanity, when looked at compared to one another, spreads out on a continuum between relatively good and righteous and moral and shipwrecks of life. <laughs> and those at the upper end of the relatively moral righteous, looking at the shipwrecks, can tend to feel a bit superior, uh, tend to feel a bit smug, tend to look at them as they, the shipwrecks are expressing the slavery to sin shown at the end of chapter 1 and say, well, those people deserve judgment. <laughs> God's judgment should fall on those kind of people. But they themselves, as we saw yesterday, tend to look at themselves as above all of that. They tend to believe, as I said yesterday, that God marks on a curve. And because I'm on the upper side of the continuum, not quite so degenerate as some of these other people, that I think everything will work out all right, that I'll have a passing grade when all is said and done. But of course, such an attitude is in error. <laughs> such an attitude overlooks the fact that it's not shipwrecks of life that separate us from God. It is the essence of sin that separates us from God. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the most righteous and religious person has to acknowledge that when God identified the greatest of the commandments, which of all commandments you wouldn't want to break, that that commandment was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who could truly stand before God on the basis of that? Who could, with their head held high, say, well, yeah, I've sure done that? No, everyone has fallen, everyone has broken, and certainly everyone has broken the greatest of commandments. 
And if all break what is most important, then all are lost and without hope unless God does something. And of course, God did something. That was the gospel. As verse 16 of chapter 1 said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Well, let's continue in our study. I want to build on what we were looking at yesterday. God is making a warning in these opening verses to the relatively righteous, the relatively religious person, the person who situates themselves relative to other people on the upper side of the continuum. He warns them that you too will be facing judgment. Yesterday I was reading to you out of Luke chapter 18 and Jesus' description of the Pharisee going to going to the temple to pray, and the tax collector going to the temple to pray. And how the Pharisee, on a relative scale, looking at the tax collector, said, I'm glad I'm not like that person, Lord. Whereas the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's so easy for the relatively righteous, the relatively religious, the person situating themselves on the more moral side of the human continuum, to look at those who fall short of that, and judge them. Let me talk about this judging that's being talked about in these opening verses, you who judge. I want you to understand when the Bible is talking about this, it is we need to understand that judging is not synonymous with calling an activity sin. It's not judging to identify something that God's word is identified as sin and to say it's sin. It's not judging to call a behavior that God describes as sinful as being sinful. It is simply being true to the word, taking the word of God seriously. It's not judging to do that. Well, if that's not judging, you ask, well, what is judging? Judging, as this passage is talking about it, is doing more than identifying a behavior as out of harmony with God's truth. You're going beyond that when you judge to say, I'm passing sentence on you as well. <laughs> this kind of judging, which is very common among the relatively righteous and relatively religious, those, as I've used this analogy, who are on the upper part of the continuum of human behavior, uh, very common for them to not merely call a behavior sin, but to go beyond that and pass judgment on the individual who is doing it. And so using Romans 1 into Romans 2, what's going on here is the relatively righteous religious person looking back on the shipwrecks described at the end of chapter 1, say, well, God, these people are not only sinners, they deserve what they're getting, and they should deserve judgment before you. And my sense of myself is that I'm somehow better than that, and I somehow deserve a very different outcome than they're going to get. I have more merit before God than the shipwrecked people. And God answers that, and he says, those of you who are on the relatively religious, relatively moral, uh, relatively righteous side of the continuum, understand that you're going to stand before me without excuse too. Now, this is revolutionary stuff if you think of life through a human frame, not from God's frame, but from a human frame. What he is saying here is that the person who is relatively righteous, relatively religious, stands 
on the very same place before him that the worst sin-enslaved person stands. Now, what sad irony there is in that. The relatively righteous person judging and passing sentence on the shipwrecked type of person is doing that to try to feel more comfortable about and more confident about their own standing before God. And God says, listen, I want you to step back and view these things through my eyes. You both are on the same place. You're both in the same continuum. You both will stand before me without excuse. Why? Because every point we use to judge another person and to see them as justifiably condemned by God ends up turning around and condemning us ourselves. We know that's true because Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 28, Jesus reveals this very revolutionary idea for humanity, and that is that sin is seen not only in what you've done, but what you think and how you're oriented. You know, you, you've committed adultery, not just by the action of adultery, but by looking lustfully upon a woman. Or you've murdered, not just by the physical act of murder, but by having this hatred toward a brother in your heart. Do you follow? God says, listen, sin is pervasive like that. Sin is expressed in our thoughts and in our motives and in our attitudes, not only our actions. And when you take our thoughts and our attitudes into the equation, it creates a very different playing field. All of the differences between us start to go away. And then when you add one other factor to it, and that is God's perfect holiness and perfect righteousness, no longer measuring men against men, but measuring mankind against God, the playing field becomes even leveler, doesn't it? James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in a single point has become accountable of all of it. In other words, you're either a sinner or you're not a sinner. And once you failed one part of the law, you are a sinner. Now, so you can say, well, some people sin more than I did. Possibly. But before a holy, righteous God, one sin is enough to separate you. A message we learned even in the opening part of the scripture in the, in the Garden of Eden, something we'll look at a little bit more later. Well, here's the question. How much sin does it take to separate us from God and put us in the place where we need that gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation? And the answer to this is that even one sin puts us in that place. Well, join me next time as we continue to unfold these verses together in the opening part of chapter 2 of the book of Romans. God bless.